This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man... He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock... From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Kaler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. There's no doubt the NHS did an incredible job getting the UK through the pandemic. Families who had spent the day indoors stepped outside briefly to let the NHS workers know just how much they're appreciated. But now the system itself is ailing. More than half of maternity units in England don't consistently meet safety standards. This year, the hours wasted by ambulances waiting outside hospitals and not answering 999 calls has risen exponentially. Um, In August last year, there was a record high number of patients urgently referred by their GPs waiting for over two months uh, for cancer treatment. The amount of people who need the services that we can offer is growing and we just do not have the resource to deal with them. There are many who feel after years of just about managing, it's finally reached a breaking point. It's never been easy. The job is tough. But this is on another scale. Still, hope may be on the horizon. New Health Minister Therese Coffey will be making an announcement today outlining her plans for health and social care. There will be millions of staff and patients waiting to hear what she says. But how big is the challenge ahead? What's the root cause of the crisis? 
And is the new health minister up to the job? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. To find out what exactly is going wrong in our healthcare system, who better to speak to than someone on the ground? So, hi, my name's Tim Cooksley. I'm a consultant in acute medicine working in Manchester, and I am currently the president of the Society for Acute Medicine. There's an increasing pattern that all of us working in acute medicine are seeing. The area of medicine Tim works in means that he sees how issues in one department ricochet around, creating other problems throughout the NHS. So acute medicine looks after people who are acutely unwell of a medical problem who can come either from their GP, the emergency department, or direct from the paramedic teams. We have blockages in our emergency department because patients can't come to our acute medical unit. In our acute medical unit, we have patients unable to move forward to the downstream wards. And unfortunately, patients can't go home from the downstream wards because of challenges in social care and nursing care in the community. But there's pressure throughout each of these areas, which means the patients aren't moving through the system in a timely way, meaning they're not getting their care delivered effectively and then causing a slowing throughout the whole chain of care. But it's unfortunately no one single point. There is pressure at every point of the system. Dennis Campbell, you're the health policy editor for The Guardian. We just heard from Dr Tim Cooksley about the blockages and delays throughout our health and social care systems. And recently there have been a lot of concerning reports about waiting lists, access to GPs and dentists. It's not a pretty picture. You've been following this unfolding crisis. Where are we now and what impact is it having on people's health? The NHS is in a really grave and really perilous state. What's really particularly troubling, Ian, these days is that the evidence of actual patient harm as a direct result of this is starting to pile up. We now have the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, which represents A&E doctors across the UK, warning that based on Office of National Statistics data, they estimate there are 500 excess deaths a week, which those doctors believe are mainly attributable to the many delays across the system. People need urgent and emergency care, by definition, quickly, and more and more, they ain't getting it. And on the front line of these issues are patients turning up to hospitals who need that emergency care, but are stuck waiting in ambulances. What do we know about that? Every month, an organisation called the Association of Ambulance Chief Executives publishes a report about the number of delayed patient handovers, patients stuck in ambulances at the back of hospitals. So in August, so the most recent data, 208,000 patients were delayed being handed over to A&E staff by 15 minutes. 42,000 of those waited for at least an hour or more. Once the patients were finally in A&E, roughly 30,000 patients waited at least 12 hours between the decision to admit them and them actually getting a bed. 12 hours is a long time to wait. And as a result, I'll just read this to you. Harm as a result of delays was experienced by potentially 35,000 patients in August. Of this number, nearly 4,000 potentially experienced severe harm. And severe harm in the NHS definition includes death. 
Tell me how social care fits into all of this, because obviously that's going to be a big aspect of what's going on with the NHS as well. This matters for the NHS because there's always a certain proportion of people who end up staying in, in hospital longer than they need to because they can't get home again, because there haven't been adjustments, physical adjustments made to their house to enable them to come home safely, at, particularly after a, a fall and broken limbs, or they can't guarantee that they'll get sort of four visits a day from a team of carers, or they won't get visits every week reliably from district nurses or other people to keep them safe in their own environment. At the moment, roughly one in seven beds in England is filled with someone who should be elsewhere. And some hospitals, patients have been delayed discharge, stuck there, despite being medically fit to go for as long as nine months. The die was clearly cast for a lot of these problems before COVID came along. But since then, the NHS's referral to treatment waiting list has reached an astounding 6.8 million people, with well over two and a half million waiting for more than 18 weeks. Tim explained what impact he had seen from the pandemic. The pandemic really revealed the lack of capacity within the system and the lack of the system to deal with any excess challenge which COVID clearly presented. Whilst the patients with COVID now are not as poorly as they were two years ago and the number of them presenting acutely and well has significantly reduced, the problem is that the lack of resource and capacity in the system has meant that patients who became unwell with other problems during the COVID pandemic are often presenting with their other conditions later needing more complex management and they are more poorly and the resource isn't there to help support them with their new conditions as effectively. Of course alongside that the COVID pandemic has caused a lot of psychological impact The effect of the pandemic has caused significant reduction in morale among staff with significant burnout in many of our colleagues who are no longer able to work full time or indeed many are unable now to work at all. And so that has increased workforce challenges and colleagues are increasingly failing to see when things are going to improve for both themselves and more importantly for the patients they're looking after. Dennis, let's get on to how the NHS got into this state. I mean, the NHS is routinely a priority among voters, but also seems short of money. Is the NHS not getting all it needs? It would be great if it was simple as money. The problem that has not been taken as seriously in government as it should be for many, many years is the lack of staff to actually provide the healthcare. Sometimes I hear senior doctors and sort of health experts saying, oh, just give us more money. That ain't going to work unless you've got the people to do it. Worryingly, every quarter, the NHS England publishes its most recent vacancy data, posts it can't fill. It had been chugging around 100,000 for several years. It went up very recently from 105,000 vacancies to 133,000 vacancies. And do we know why the NHS is struggling with such staff shortages. Is this historical underfunding of training or is this people leaving the NHS after becoming exasperated with it, people not joining? What's the cause of that staff shortage? It's everything you've mentioned, really. The problem is both recruitment and retention. If anything, the problem that these days is more retention because people get 
exhausted, burned out. I come across some young people who join the NHS as young, newly qualified doctors or nurses. And within a couple of years, they're gone. We can't escape the fact that NHS pay has declined by, in real terms, of anything between sort of 20 and 30% since 2010. The incentive to join a highly pressurised work environment is clearly constrained. One of the things I wondered was whether what seems like a crisis from the outside feels like one on the inside. I put this to Tim. So I think asking whether we're in a crisis at the second is always a a challenging question because we refer to the NHS being in crisis so frequently down the last few years that people, particularly who are sceptical about the NHS, almost become immune to that as a term. And, And I certainly think it's fair to say that the NHS is at a period of tremendously high risk. I don't think it's quite in crisis yet, but if we don't do something to start to mitigate the huge workforce and capacity challenges that we face, particularly heading into this winter, we will get to a point where even I would describe it as a crisis. And my definition of that is is higher than many colleagues. Dennis, do you think the message is getting across? Because from what Tim said, it sounds like there's a danger that we're so used to hearing about the NHS being in trouble Hearing more about it is just failing to hit the mark with the people that can really do something, the politicians. I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I I was very struck through the long-running Tory leadership campaign over the summer, how rarely in the many, many uh, leadership debates the NHS featured as a a big issue. It it, it was in there occasionally a little bit, but it was a bit of a sideshow to all the other things that were being talked about. Whereas if you ask most people, what's the most practical problem facing, the most pressing problem facing the country? Most people would say the NHS because most people know someone on a waiting list or have heard a horror story. But usefully today, uh, the new health secretary, Therese Coffey, is going to set out what is sort of billed as a sort of a, an NHS action plan to tackle all the many woes and ills and problems that you and I have been discussing. And she's going to give a, a major statement to the Commons this afternoon outlining her plans. From what you've said, Dennis, she clearly has a huge job on. But who is Therese Coffey? Give us the sort of intro to her. What's her background? What's her sort of competence, if you like? So Therese Coffey is a very close ally of Liz Truss, who's also made her not just health secretary, but also the deputy prime minister. So very, very important. She uh, rose up through the ministerial ranks. She was most recently had a three-year stint at the Department of Work and Pensions. Uh, but what an interest she's got. Therese Coffey's mantra for the NHS, she's already made it public, is she spells it out as A, B, C, D. Ambulances, the backlog, care, and doctors and dentists, so A, B, C, D. Those, those are the sort of things we expect to hear from her when she addresses MPs this afternoon. We'll wait and see exactly what her plans are. But Dennis, do you have a sense of whether this can even be turned around by one health minister or one government? What sort of future are we looking at for the NHS in this country? I do worry now that the scale of the problems facing the NHS are now so vast that it would take sustained action by governments, plural, successive governments, with the right plan, the right determination, the right size of cheque to sort it out. The 
editor of the Health Service Journal recently wrote that at no other time in the past 50 years have so many parts of the NHS been so close to ceasing to function effectively. If you agree that that is the extent of the challenge, and he is not a given to hyperbole, it'll take time, willpower, money, energy, vision, and sustained patience that the government is on the right path. So let's hope that this government, Liz Truss and Therese Coffey, show the nation that they're serious and have a long-term plan. Dennis, huge thanks for coming on and taking us through all this. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Dennis Campbell and to Dr Tim Cooksley. You can find all our reporting on the NHS crisis and Therese Coffey's upcoming statement at theguardian.com. And just before you go, if you didn't catch the trailer at the start of this episode, then you need to know about a new six-part Guardian podcast, Can I Tell You a Secret?, about a cyber stalker who wreaked havoc online and why he did it. It's going to be a really fascinating listen, and all the episodes will be available on Friday the 23rd to binge. Subscribe to Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. The producer was Madeline Finley, with additional production from Rachel Porter. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer was Danielle Stevens. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.